I'm Chris Reback. This is Investigating Breast Cancer, the podcast of the Breast Cancer Research Foundation and conversations with the world's leading scientists studying breast cancer prevention, diagnosis, treatment, survivorship, and metastasis. Most women who die of breast cancer die from metastatic disease, the spread of tumor cells to different parts of the body. Metastasis often results following treatment failure, but it also can occur decades after what was thought to be successful treatment. Currently, no curative therapies exist for metastatic breast cancer. But today, the race to develop effective treatments for this disease is a key focus for some extraordinary research, much of it centering on cancer cells' protein synthesis machinery and a protein called mTOR. What's the status of this research and what might some practical outcomes look like? I just had an incredibly thoughtful conversation with Dr. Robert Schneider. He's the Associate Director of the NYU Cancer Institute, Director of Translational Cancer Research, and Co-Director of the Breast Cancer Research Program at NYU School of Medicine. He's also a BCRF investigator since 2002. Before my conversation with Dr. Schneider, though, one last item and ask from me to you. I hope you like these investigating breast cancer conversations, and if so, I'd appreciate if you'd take a moment, go to iTunes, and if you're so moved, leave a five-star review. The ratings really matter. They go a long way to helping other people find the podcast. Thank you for considering my request. Okay, that's it. Here's my conversation with Dr. Robert Schneider. Dr. Schneider, thanks for joining me. I appreciate your time. Pleasure to be here. So I, I want to start with an extraordinary statistic that uh, goes really, I think, to the heart of your research. Um, and if it doesn't, of course, you'll let me know. The, the fact that most women who die of breast cancer die from metastatic disease. That's correct. Is that fact sufficiently understood? No. Yeah, it is absolutely correct. Um, it is metastatic disease that kills us, whether it's breast cancer or most other forms of cancer. Uh, and it is by far and away the most poorly understood and the one for which there is the greatest number of exclusions in clinical trial. It's actually quite rare in clinical trial to be able to include metastatic patients. And, and why is that? Because when testing new drugs, the metastatic patient population, which is the one most at risk, of course, for death, are the ones where it's hardest to achieve um, a real effect. And so um, it is really a, a problem with the drug approval process in mm. this country and actually throughout the world. Um, in that one has to show um, quite a, a significant effect to get approval, um, and yet that's not the population with primary cancer that we would typically be treating um, with these drugs. And it, in fact, to make it even more complicated, I would think, um, the thing about metastasis is that it not only can occur following treatment failure, but also can occur decades after what was thought to be successful treatment. Is that right? That's absolutely correct, particularly for hormone responsive or res uh, hormone receptor responsive disease. So ER positive uh, breast cancers, which are the majority of breast cancers, 80% or so of breast cancers, can occur at any point post what we thought was curative therapy. Uh, and that's what makes it particularly tragic. So 20 years later, a woman who has actually um, no longer thinking about her breast cancer um, has a recurrence. It's about 60 to 65% of all breast cancer mortality. Metastatic disease, late recurrence, ER positive breast cancers. 
Did that inspire you to get into this area and to focus on this area, or did that happen uh, through different means? Uh, it actually did. Um, you know, we mo- many of us that started our, our research careers and clinical careers in other areas have moved over to breast cancer because of personal tragedy in our family lives. Um, and that was my motivation. The first half of my career, I was a virologist working on viruses that cause cancer, such as liver cancer by hepatitis B virus. Um, and faced with exactly that dilemma, um, where um, it was extraordinary to me that in the case of either very early breast cancer, where the cure, quote, cure was double mastectomy, um, or yeah. in the case of the metastatic setting, um, that we knew almost nothing about the cause of disease and we had no real treatments. And I came in one day and turned my back on what was... Um, Um, a really rich research career with many NIH grants and said, no, today I'm going to be a breast cancer researcher. And that was some 20 years ago, turned my back on it and have um, never looked back. I'm delighted that I have and I'm having an impact. Yeah, uh, you are. And I want to ask you about some of that impact that you've had um, over the years. Um, But but let's talk about... um, your research and and your efforts to develop effective treatments. What is mTOR? mTOR is protein kinase. So it's a protein that regulates um, many metabolic pathways within cells. Yeah, tell me what that means. Um, So when one consumes sugar or you eat or you're deprived of nutrients, mTOR is the central gatekeeper and regulator of how your cell is able to respond whether the cell shuts down and becomes um, basically um, a resting cell or whether that cell becomes stimulated and proliferates, all of that is controlled by mTOR. And the way it does that, in part, is through the control of how we make proteins. And what does that have to do with metastasis of breast cancer? So one of the most... um, difficult parts of understanding um, metastasis is understanding how a metastatic breast cancer cell is able to reproduce itself and spread throughout the body in an environment in which it's starved for oxygen and starved for nutrients, um, in which most cells would normally be shut down and mm-hmm. stop proliferating, and in many cases they would die. The metastatic breast cancer cell has solved that problem by um, increasing the activation of the kinase mTOR. Um, and tricking the cell, basically, into believing that it has lots of nutrients and oxygen, and so it keeps on proliferating and spreading. And so mTOR, therefore, has become a very very major focus of our research and that of many others. And so describe that focus for me. How how does, how do you, how do you, I don't know if, if, how do you untrick the, the, the process? How do, how do you, do you, you know, how do you think about affecting mTOR or affecting the process in a way such that uh, um, the effects that it otherwise would have um, don't occur? Uh, that's an excellent question. Um, and it really goes to the heart of how do we translate what we do in the lab to having an impact on the lives of patients? Um, and this is um, an issue that I face all the time. I made the decision 20 years ago that the only way to do that is through the creation of new therapeutics. Uh, And the reason for that is because 
we know that that magic doesn't work. And we learned that about 300 years ago. So it's only through the development of new therapeutics, new types of drugs that we're able to actually manipulate the cancer cell. And in the case of mTOR, there are a series of drugs now that have been developed that can shut down mTOR in various ways. And they're having some efficacy in the clinic, but we need to, at a much greater level, really begin to understand um, how cancer cells are able to continuously um, find ways to circumvent the inhibition of mTOR. And that's a large part of what we work on. You used a word at the beginning of uh, of, of that answer. You talked about uh, translate or, or translating. Um, you, you're yes. the director of uh, translation cancer research um, at, yes. at NYU. Um, and drug discovery. And yeah. drug discovery. Oh, a whole bunch of stuff. But it, I, I'm just at focus yeah, yeah. because I, you know, I saw that. And so I did a little bit more reading on, um, you know, translational science. And, and given what you said earlier as well about, you know, getting, um, you know, the, the, the personal reasons and what, what motivated you um, – that's really the key, I guess, isn't it? It, it, it? That translational science is taking the research and, and, that, and that scientific and those discoveries, but then translating them and applying them to human lives, to, to how we live our lives. Yes, it, it absolutely is. And, and, you know, ironically, it is the way research began. So if you go all the way back to the early days at the turn of this past century, Salk and Sabin were creating vaccines for polio virus. And while they were interested in the mechanisms by which viruses like polio virus cause disease, they were also interested in how to prevent that. And then over the years, um, we, scientists seem to diverge between groups of scientists that do basic research, and I do basic research, and those that just translate it. And the reason is because it's really hard to do both mm. because you have to be a master of basic research and all of the molecular understanding that comes with that. And at the same time, you really need to understand the disease itself and how to actually develop drugs and move them into the clinic as well. You know, so it's somewhat overwhelming. Um, it does take some time to really begin to master both of those fields. Uh, at the same time, I believe that for those of us that have been provided the gift and the responsibility to be in major medical centers, that's what we have to do. And I would assume, as an outsider, that there's some kind of positive circular effect that occurs. I, I, would, I would think that mm -hmm. what you see in human life goes back and affects how you do, you know, maybe some, some insights or informs your basic research, which then must necessarily inform the, the work that you do uh, with actual patients. It actually does. And in fact, even for the graduate students in my lab, um, I have patients patient advocates, survivors come to the lab and visit um, and tell their stories. Um, and I have them come to clinic as well, the students and postdocs and others as well. Um, it is why we're here. Uh, it's enormously satisfying. It's an enormous motivator because it's no longer abstract. And I say to them, you come and you tell this 32-year-old woman with two young children that we have nothing left to offer her you'll want to go right back in the lab and start working on that right away. And that's why we do it. Yeah, that's fair. That's just incredibly powerful. And uh, it's, a, it's a, I'm sure, a huge motivator. 
Yeah, we don't have a lot of time on this earth, right? This is a no. gift that we have to be able to do science and translate it. Yeah, what, what a wonderful uh, point of view. I, I couldn't agree more. Uh, it, it, tell me about uh, the approaches that you are testing now or, the, or some of the mm-hmm. trials or research that you have um, going on right now. Sure. So I have built on our understanding of how protein synthesis is controlled in the metastatic breast cancer cell. And so we've been able to show over the years and in more publications, some of which will be coming out soon, um, that they have cancer cells in the metastatic setting have enacted specialized programs for um, making certain that they can make the proteins they need for their survival and their spread. And so now understanding those, we've gone back in and started developing new therapeutics to attack specific mechanisms so that um, rather than um, utilizing toxic drugs like common chemotherapies, we're utilizing designer drugs that the cancer cells seem to have no capacity to circumvent. So we're now moving some of those from from, uh, the laboratory bench. We've moved them into animals. In other cases, we've moved from animals into humans. And we've done that in several areas. One of those is in immuno-oncology. And so we've developed several new immuno-oncology agents that we're hoping to have in the clinic next year that um, will eliminate to a large extent the stealthiness of metastatic breast cancers and others. Uh, and at the same time, attacking within the cancer cell um, some of the unique mechanisms that they have developed uh, to produce their own proteins. And in that case, we're actually doing it in a very designer-specific fashion. Uh, and that is that we actually have structures of these proteins. And uh, working with computational chemists, yeah. we're actually fitting molecules into those structures and having them synthesized. Uh, that actually is a much quicker way to develop new therapeutics, new types of drugs, than screening millions and millions of compounds um, for a specific inhibitor. We now have computational power to do this. It's incredible, and I've had the privilege to uh, talk with some of the computational uh, researchers and scientists. And, uh, yeah, the work that they are doing and the speed to market, if you will, it's, that's not really the right, that's right. term, but, but just the, the, the way it speeds up the process, yeah, seems um, fascinating. The, the, drug, the, the drugs that you would potentially develop based off of this research, um, and maybe even some of the ones that you've developed um, historically, how do they work with chemotherapy is it does it does it reduce so we all hear about you know chemotherapy as being you know the you know one of the key uh Mm -hmm. processes obviously um how, how do the drugs work in in conjunction with that so what what we have tried to achieve in certain of these drugs is to be able to lower the levels of chemotherapy that are required to achieve um in the death of metastatic cancer cells That's one of the keys. Um, And so they are now in animal models where we've been able to do that and to reduce the toxicity um, quite enormously. So what we have shown is by inhibiting mTOR by only 20% or 30%, which is extremely well tolerated, um, we're able to reduce the amount of chemotherapy that's required to achieve what is a really significant effect on on metastatic cancer cells, particularly breast cancer cells. Uh, The next step is to get this into the clinic. Um, and to be able to conduct clinical trials where we show we can achieve the same effect without all that toxicity. 
Yeah. Right. It's the toxicity that people fear um, when they f- they are faced with having to be treated for, um, for example, hormone uh, receptor negative breast cancers. Yes. Yes. And and what a difference, you know, going back to the translational uh, discussion and the impact on on everyday life, what an impact that would make to uh, to be able to reduce that toxicity and, and in- improve a, a person's you know ability to recover. Mm-hmm. That's right. And and the, the other part of that that we should not lose sight of is that we treat a lot of breast cancer, of course, without chemotherapy. Yep. So many women are treated with hormone receptor positive uh, uh, breast cancer uh, with aromatase inhibitors and um, with uh, tamoxifen, so inhibitors that block endocrine function. The problem, once again, is that roughly 50% of the time, those cancers come back, as we, we started to talk about at the outset of this discussion, they'll come back 20 years later now, and they're no longer sensitive to endocrine inhibitors. And so much of our work is also designed um, to be able to um, make them sensitive again to those endocrine inhibitors, which are not toxic for the most part, reasonably well tolerated. Uh, and we've been working on that actually quite diligently, um, and we now are prepared to move forward to the clinic um, with a drug combination, again, based on mTOR, that has reversed endocrine resistance. Mm. And you mentioned, you know, going back 20 years. I wanted to ask you as well about, um, this is about 10 years ago, I think, research of yours and um, extraordinary discovery, but I'm interested in how it has affected your research um, since. What is the EIF4G1 gene? And if I'm <laughs> saying that wrong, you, you know, please tell no. me. Yeah, so, so what is it? And, what, and what what is an it awful to, nomenclature. I can't be blamed for that nomenclature. You, you, didn't do the brand, you didn't do the branding on that? I didn't do the branding on that. <laughs> okay, well, we'll, we'll send that so, to the show. So those are specific factors that carry out protein synthesis. And indeed, we have a paper that will be coming out hopefully in the next several weeks in, in a major journal. Um, one of the premier journals, showing that we've discovered yet another novel protein that carries out protein synthesis and is absolutely essential for metastasis. And so we are, you can bet right now, we are heavily invested in drugging that protein right now. So at, at the molecular level, every type of biosynthetic pathway within our cells that enable us to make our DNA and our RNA and our proteins and our carbohydrates and our lipids, our fats, every one of those is extremely complicated and directed by a very large number of proteins, thousands and thousands of them. And we keep discovering new proteins um, every year. Uh, And so um, these factors we have been able to demonstrate um, don't do not function like a light switch. They're not on and they're not off. In fact, what they have are specificities of certain types of uh, genes that are required, for example, for the survival of a cancer cell and its ability to metastasize throughout the body have a much greater requirement for these factors than do the average um, genes that are functioning just to keep cells um, proliferating, for example, and metabolizing. And that was a real breakthrough because what that did was open the door to understanding that we have selectivity um, in these pathways and we can drug them with that understanding. How did you get into all of this? And by all of this, I mean going way back. Where did you grow up? And for you, was it it always science? And, and, you know, did did you ever think at one point that perhaps uh, you'd be a fiction novelist instead? 
Yeah, I actually wanted to be a stand-up comic, um, but <laughs> that wasn't going to work out. I, I grew up in a science family. Mm. My father was a chemist. Uncles, One uncle was a chemist. Another was a physicist. Um, and I tried to get away from it, actually, although I always loved science. Uh, and I was a philosophy major in college. Uh, and ultimately, it pulled me back in. And I wound up having a dual degree in philosophy and biochemistry when I graduated. Um, I was always drawn to trying to understand how things work, um, and I was so intrigued by the ability to be able to change my universe around me through my understanding of science, uh, whether it was to be able to make uh, inks and glues or how electricity worked. Um, it uh, really provided the ability to change the world that you lived in, uh, and so for me, it was just a natural continuation. I will say my philosophy background has proved to be important as well because it trains your mind to think um, in a very more abstract way. Uh, and so that combined with science, I think, was a, a great way to start. Yes, the, your, your philosophy background absolutely comes across in your not just you know your demeanor but but your thoughtfulness and and it makes sense it makes sense why you do both the basic research as you discussed and then the mm. translational work that would seem to me that you know for somebody crazy enough to marry uh, philosophy and science um, you, see, <laughs> you seem to have carried that out. many more than you think actually yeah. uh, they actually do work well together yeah. So do the arts. That's why there's so many people that are so talented in the arts that also are scientists. That's terrific. Well, that, that would be an interesting series of conversations. And, and just to, to close out, I, I mean, obviously you get and have earned support from um, a number of areas. Uh, yeah. What role has BCRF played in your research? Yeah, you know, if it wasn't for BCRF, none of this would have happened. None of this would have taken place. None of these breakthroughs would have occurred. Uh, and I say that in all seriousness. Um, while I am indebted to the National Institutes of Health and I'm well supported by them, I have four NIH grants right now, um, it is the BCRF that has enabled me and everybody else in that or that's supported by that organization to think really creatively, to take the kind of risk that you could never take by conventional funding. You know, the, the, the motto at BCRF is basically do something really smart. Mm -hmm. Take a risk, take a chance. Um, and that's what we have all done. Uh, it has enabled us to, to generate the kinds of data based on uh, ideas and not crazy ideas, but really thoughtful ideas for which we don't yet have any evidence um, to really take that chance and know that next year they'll continue to support us, even if in that given year um, we did not make great progress. Uh, simply because they know that we're taking a risk and trying to think about um, the problem of breast cancer in a very different way. And I will say every one of my major breakthroughs has been funded by the BCRF and then later picked up by the NIH that allowed me to then more fully develop it. Mm -hmm. And then ultimately picked up by um, companies, whether it's a company I help start or a larger pharmaceutical company, to then bring that forward into the clinic. Oh, that's uh, that's terrific, um, and it's great to see how it uh, you know how it can grow and and how it can grow from uh, idea to actual research and then uh, into mm -hmm. the market itself. Um, Dr. Schneider, yeah. thank you, thank you for your time, and thank, thank you, you. Uh, for the risks that you've taken. Thank you so very much. That was my conversation with Dr. Robert Schneider. My thanks to Dr. Schneider for joining, and you for listening. 
To learn more about breast cancer research or to subscribe to our podcast, go to bcrf.org slash podcasts.